Welcome to Inside the Banjoverse, a podcast exploring Roots Music's great artists. Please do rate and subscribe. It makes a huge difference and let all your friends know to listen. This is Enda Scal from Irish bluegrass crossover band We Banjo 3. Before you freak out, don't worry, there's actually four of us and mostly just one banjo. That's me. Damien O'Kane is a renowned Irish banjo player, guitarist, singer, a fantastic arranger of music, and a husband to English folk singer Kate Rusby. Uh, I really enjoyed our conversation recently. Uh, Damien lists among his early influences uh, phenomenal banjo players such as Jerry O'Connor, Cahill Hayden, and of course Brian McGrath. I hope you enjoy this interview with Damien O'Kane. this interview a little bit backwards and we're going to start at the end and then and uh, a bit like a band that's completely bored we're going to do the encore first and then uh, finish with the first set um your most recent <laughs> album <laughs> with ron block because i got to interview ron recently and uh, i mean i'm a huge fan of ron's playing but also as a personality he's one of the nicest kindest yeah and most interesting musicians i think you could meet how did you end up recording an album with Ron Block? Where did the idea come for doing it on two banjos? And just talk a little bit about the process. Well, um, for a start, I do actually still kind of pinch myself, to be honest. Um, I like to tell people, yeah, 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 I've been album with Ron Block. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's all cool, though. Um, Ron and I first met um in 2012 um my wife kate rusby was um recording a a celebration album of 20 years on the road 20 years as a musician touring musician and um unfortunately kate is uh, a bigger fan of the five string banjo than she is of the four string (laughs) so um unfortunately for me um, but um, she's always been a huge fan of Alison Krauss and a huge fan of Ron's playing on Alison's records. Um, and Alison was actually playing at Manchester Apollo. Um, it was, in fact, that was 2011, I think, because that's the first time I met Ron. We went to the gig. to go backstage and meet Ron and some of the guys and we just as soon as I met him 
I was just like, this guy is, there's something really, really special about him. I I already thought that about his playing, but like you were saying, as a human being, as you just meet people sometimes, I think, um, and there's something there's a, there's a warmth comes from them from their personality from and I got that from them straight away um it wasn't long after that um we we asked Ron if he would come and record on on Kate's Kate's album 20 um in 2012 and he he came and recorded on the album um and if, you know while he was staying up at the studio, we got talking to each other quite a lot and we'd sit over glasses of wine or cups of tea and um, we, after he played on the album, we were just like, we have to have him on the gig. We have to get him on the on the 20 tour. So he came, he came and did the 20 tour and again, we just really, really connected. Um, Kate and myself um, and it wasn't, you know, we, we really quickly after that started talking about making an album together. And as somebody said uh, in a write-up quite recently about Ron and I, we met in 2012, talked about making a banjo album, um, and we successfully, we succeeded in not doing that for another couple of years. <laughs> so Ron, Ron came over in 2014, and we met in the studio, and that was the first time. Um, that was the first time that we recorded one track that year, like just one, literally one track. And we didn't get into the studio again until I think it was twenty sixteen. Uh, Sierra Hull and we decided while he was over touring with her let's get back in the studio again have you got any time you know before the tour or after the tour and we fitted in some time uh, four or five days and that was another surreal moment we were because we recorded that album live apart from overdubs from guests like Ron and myself and David Kosky, who did a lot of the guitar on that album, we just sat in a circle, um, mic'd up, mic'd up, and we just wanted it to sound, to have that real kind of live raw sound. But we were recording April 2016, and of course Sierra Hull's sitting downstairs, and I turned around to Ron and said, this is kind of crazy, She's Sierra's sitting downstairs, do you think she'd be up for maybe recording on a couple of things? And Ron was like, dang, man, I'm pretty sure she would. <laughs> Sorry, Ron, that was a terrible accent. <laughs> um, so Ron went and said to Sierra, would you fancy recording on some things? And she was like, oh, I'd love to, I'd love to. 
Um, so we spent most of those days with the four of us sitting around, bouncing ideas off each other. It was just the the best experience recording an album. Um, and of course, sitting opposite me is Ron Block and sitting over there is Sierra Hull. Sitting here is my, my good pal Dave Kosky, who, who's playing a love. It was like I I was in absolute like studio heaven. So we recorded most of the banjophony on that when we met up in 2016. And then we met up, Ron came over in 2018. And we finished the album and released and we released it that year. So that's kind of that's that's how Banjofni came about. And I mean, you know, it was such a learning curve that album for for both Ron and I. We both still talk about it quite a lot. I I wasn't trying to be a bluegrass musician because there's uh, because I'm not. Um, Ron wasn't trying to be a, an Irish banjo player. We we just kind of we tried to just kind of get a little bit of all right. I'm going to get a little bit of that what Ron's doing and try and just kind of adapt my plan a little bit. And he was kind of doing the same from my plan, and it was very much a process. We didn't want to just sit down and go, right, Ron, um, here's a really good reel in A. I'll play it and you just kind of do a bluegrass thing over it. Because we, we could have done that and the album would have been done in a few days. We we wanted to... It's It was really weird like because we didn't even talk about it loads, but we both just automatically took the same approach to making this album. We were like, we really wanted to, to make make it work um and not, not not just make it work we wanted to, we wanted the both traditions to to really meld together and for it not to sound like it was just kind of thrown together mm. um yeah it was it was it was an incredible experience and I, and I honestly learned so much from from making that album we, we both kind of came away from the album better musicians for it, I think.
haven't talked a lot about that about each uh, each banjo essentially being its own self and being its own voice and, and melding the two together because I would imagine if I sat in a room with uh, Sierra Hull and Ron Block I would just like feel like I was going to crumble under the pressure of such virtuosic musicianship and kind of go I just know how to play little <laughs> Irish reels and jigs and how, how do you compare that to the levels of almost jazz improvisation that those musicians are able to bring to a song yes. bring to a tune you know was there a lot going on in your head in that regard or did you just kind of sit back and go do you know what I'm I'm good at what I do and I'm going to bring that to the table there was a bit of that going on inside the depths of my mind at that time and I was I mean, I was fairly anxious about sitting in a room with Ron Block recording in the first place. But then Sierra came on board and it was like, well, this is, there's no no room here for, I'll not use bad language, but there's no, there's, there's only one thing that can be done here and it is bring your A game. And... You know, I really felt as personally for me that, that all three musicians in that room made me play in in some instances better than I thought I could play. It was like, right. And that was one of the most, that was another enjoyable aspect of making that album was, right, Damien, you need to be pretty, you need to be good here. <laughs> don't be crap <laughs> <laughs> yeah but isn't that the sign of a great musician I've, I've seen that over the years they make you play better um i did an album to 11 11 years ago with uh and, and looking back on it now right so i was in a studio with ricky skaggs brian sutton uh aubrey haney on the fiddle who has recorded with like beyonce and you name it uh mark fain on double bass and I didn't know, this is the funny thing, is that I didn't know enough about bluegrass music to realize what was going on. <laughs> if I had to do that today, you were. I think I would have, I, I'd psych myself out so much because I would have far more awareness of yeah. like, oh my God, it's Brian Sutton. This guy is an absolute genius on the guitar. Um, but what I did notice is that we were all playing like just so much better because of the greatness of yeah. these musicians and the, the absolute humility that they bring to it as well, because it's just what they do. But how much of it is a mind Absolutely. game, you know, because again, if I, I'd be terrified to take out a banjo in front of Sierra Hall these days. I think I just, you know, the kind of proverbial take it out and burn it sort of thing. She's an absolute genius, but she's also. Well, I don't, I don't, uh, I mean, that's, that, that, that was the other thing about, you know, and, and we've already touched on it briefly, but, but, Ron and Sierra, nicer people you couldn't meet. Like, and and I've toured with Ron a few times now, and he's just the most incredible guy to have around. He's, you know, can be really he's really profound about things, but he just if you're at all feel yourself getting into a bit of a mood in the back of the van. Just ask Ron a question and you'll be fine. <laughs> Ron will put it, 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 just like 
so such a cool guy and to be that good at a musician as well it's just it's just not right <laughs> <laughs> what was it like um what was it like growing up in Coleraine, right in northern ireland playing irish music is there is there is there is there any bit of kind of background to that that's uh, <laughs> that's worth talking about whoa Hmm. Yes, definitely. <laughs> I, I I always have. Um, go straight for the big questions, right? Well, it's it's an interesting it's an interesting subject because obviously, Coleraine is not best known for its traditional music circles. Um, there was a few families in Coleraine when we were growing up that played. Um, we had a family band, the O'Kane family band, um, and my two sisters, Breeze and Sorsha. Breeze was on fiddle. <clears throat> Sorsha was on flute and whistles. A brother who played bass and guitar. Another brother who played boron. My mum sang, and there was myself on banjo and guitar and singing. And my dad did the sound. Proper family affair. Um, we used to play, I mean, we, 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 we toured around the world quite a lot. We played in Switzerland and Sweden and Austria and mainly in Irish bars and stuff. We weren't doing festivals. We did do a great a festival in, in Sweden a couple of times, but, um, and we were known in, in the Triangle area, Port Stewart, Port Rush, Coleraine. Um, we played a lot in Port Stewart and Port Rush. Port Stewart, there's a, an amazing bar called The Anchor, and it was like a student bar. Um, we had some amazing gigs in there over the years. But we got asked to play. My dad got asked for us to come and play in a pub in Coleraine. Um, and it was a, at the time it was called Brooks. And... That's where the Korean football supporters went to drink whenever the football match was over. And we were asked to go and play on a Saturday. And I remember saying to my dad at the time, Dad, are you sure that's a good idea? Because, you know, all the football supporters are going to be coming in. You know, unfortunately at that time, um, a lot of the, the, the Korean football supporters were quite segregated, you know, Protestants were here, Catholics were there. Um, to be truthfully honest, there wasn't really a lot of Catholics went to watch the football at the time. Um, but anyway, my dad said, ah, no, no they've, they, they, they said it's going to be fine. And um, oh, we set up, started playing that day. Of course, you know, the, the football supporters started coming in. And I could see straight away there was utter dismay in a lot of the faces and I was thinking right okay just try and try and don't don't let on that you can see there's people are upset here you know because we were singing songs like the rare old mountain dew you're 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 naming Dublin slight you're, you know you're naming places in the, in the Republic of Ireland and stupidly you know there's people who took that to be that you're singing a rebel song, 
or a Republican song, um, that's not why we were doing it at all. We we love playing Irish music. But at one point, there was a guy stood at the back of the bar, and he he made his he made his hand look like a gun, and went from one side of the stage and moved his hand across the whole stage. And that was our experience. Uh, the first time we ever played in Coleraine. Um, needless to say, we, we never went back again. <laughs> but we continued to play traditional music. And there are pubs in Coleraine now uh, which ha- actively have uh, Irish traditional sessions in them. But unfortunately, Coleraine, all these years later, is still a segregated town. You know, the Protestants drink at one side of the town, Catholics drink at the other. Not, it's not 100% that way. And, uh, you know, uh, there are pubs where where you'll have, there's, there's, a, there's a mix. Um, that's generally where all the sensible people are. Mm. <laughs> we played in, we played in Oma. Yeah. We played Oma a couple of years ago. And it was the night that the Northern Ireland uh, soccer team had beaten Poland in uh, maybe it was like a world qualifier or something like that and so we were in the art center in oma and we came out um the start of the first uh, first half of the show and we was like up northern ireland i was complete silence and at halftime we went out selling cds and all that and we would have known a good few of the people in the audience just from being up there previously and they were up and they were like you know that the catholics in oma uh, would rather England beat Northern Ireland <laughs> in soccer than Northern Ireland win a game. And they said, essentially, there's an art centre on the other side of Oma, which is for all the Protestants and all the Catholics go to this one. And of course, we had no no idea of this. Um, now, I have a history of making an absolute hames out of any sports reference. Uh, that was one of the worst ones. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you're still here. You're, you're you're still with us today, and indeed, yeah. <laughs> for, for probably better, fairly lucky, like but. <laughs> for for better or for worse. Well, how did you how did you end up being full time musician? Like, was there any was there a move within the family? Was it was it kind of uh, was it a thing that you know we're doing this as a family band, but you're going to go to college and you're going to get a proper job and do music on the side, or was it up to yourself? And when did you decide? Um. Well, I I decided. It wasn't a decision to become a professional musician at the time, but obviously I'd been playing for years with my family and um, my mum and dad were were just incredible. I mean, six children in our family. Um, when we were growing up, they didn't really have much money, but they still spent the money on buying us, you know, instruments, sending us to classes, sending us to Irish dancing. And um, I regularly tell them how appreciative I am for that. Um, but we, after we, after we kind of stopped playing as a family, which was around about the time I finished my A-levels, um, I went kind of straight into full-time work. I was working in a, a payroll office. And uh, there's no kind of beating around the bush, really. I, I didn't enjoy the job. I was drinking a lot. 
Um, I was still living at home at the time, um, giving my mum and dad an awful time, rolling in at four or five in the morning some days, maybe being away for two or three days. And um, Eventually I thought, right, I can't, this is not, and I wasn't even playing much music at the time either. The banjo was underneath the bed, not really playing it very much. I just all of a sudden one day decided, right, I'm gonna I'm gonna go away and do a music degree. So I actually got in touch with my old careers teacher from from uh, from grammar school, Miss Roebuck, and went down to her house and we went through all the different universities that that I wanted to go to, and it just so happened that that year, Newcastle upon Tyne University was it was going to be the first year of a folk and traditional music degree. And I was I, I was like, right, that's for me. Because I didn't even have considered going to do the, the course in Limerick. But then I thought, yeah, you know, that's kind of specifically Irish music, whereas this course here is a bit broader. Traditions of these islands was, was, was kind of one of the selling points of that degree course so you would be looking at music from Ireland, England, Scotland, Wales and further afield. So I went for my audition for that degree um, and I got in. So I I went and did the degree course at Newcastle upon Tyne. As I said before, I had no aspirations of becoming a professional musician whatsoever at this point. Really, this was to to get me out of the life that I was in at that time. And um, that's whenever, of course, when I, when I went and did the folk degree, that's where I met Shona Kipling. Um, Shona and I started playing together. We made an album, we made our first album in 2003, which was like a Shona, for those who, who are not aware of Shona, um, she's a an absolutely amazing piano accordion player. guitar at that time as well so Shona actually she she phoned me up to ask if I would um, accompany her at the Young Folk Awards, the BBC Young Folk Awards um, but I, I had to decline because I was too old <laughs> um, but uh, so Shona went and did it um, from memory I think she went and did it on her own, she did really well um, but she she phoned me back and said, look, I'd still love to, you know, play music with you. Shall we, shall we meet up and just have a bit of a play? Um, so, yeah, we, we, we made our first album in 2003. We made another one in 2005, which that one got nominated. We got nominated for a Horizon Award, at the BBC Folk Awards, which was probably 
my kind of first real career highlight at that time. The Folk Awards are quite a big deal over here. Um, and it was after that, I think, where I was like, hmm, perhaps, perhaps I could do this professionally. And I started playing with a band at university as well. Um, Shona and I were doing quite a lot. Um, and I finished the degree course in 2005. Um, and around that time was when I got asked to dep for Sarah Allen. And fluke, Sarah was going off to have a baby. And I, I'd already kind of, I'd already played music with Brian Finnegan. Um, so we were aware of each other. Um, so I went on and did a tour with Fluke. And it was, it was around about, it was around that time where, when I really realized, yeah, I, I want to do this as a profession. In fact, when I got, this is, when I got asked to join Fluke for that tour, and, and, I, and I was with them for about a year and a half. But the day after I got asked to do the Fluke tour, um, Kate Rusby's brother phoned me up and asked what a depth in her band at the and the tour was at the same time. Um, but I, I I chose to do the fluke, the fluke tour. Um, now I'm married to Kate all these years later, and she still gives me grief about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, fluke are an incredible band. I would have gone with fluke as well. Um, I met you when you were in Celt- at Celtic uh, Colors in Canada with with Shona, and I remember. Uh, the inventiveness of the music, and I, I it, and it's a curious, it's curious. You know, you mention Brian Finnegan and Fluke, and that immediately makes me think of Mike McGoldrick. And there's so many musicians that are within that Irish Irish music genre, but it's a broader scope. And I'm, what am I trying to say? I think you see, I I grew up playing like strictly traditional Irish music. And really, without the yeah. the influence of that broader folk, if if anything, it was frowned upon within the the, the sort of the boundaries of cultus and flacules and everything else. And that's you know, right. Yeah. Man, many years later, kind of forcing myself out of that to investigate American bluegrass and old time music and bringing that into what I was doing. But I was doing it at a much later age. I, I always feel, and I think. I remember when I, I remember being particularly impressed with you and Shona, that the inventiveness of the music, that it wasn't, uh, it wasn't kind of cloistered in this very strict traditional, uh, traditional music. And you could say the same, obviously, of, of Fluke. Um, when you grew up, were you, were you playing really strict traditional music? Uh, and what, what, well, what? I mean, we, we did we like you mentioned cultus the the classes we used to go to in Belairn, they were cultus classes um they i mean cultus were fantastic they are fantastic you know they've branches all over and you know they're a good reason why a lot of young people play traditional irish music now but as you say there is that side that really strict side and I remember being at a FLA one year when we were quite young and we were playing a session 
it was the first time where it was the first time my my parents had ever come across um kind of being shunted shunted away because we thought oh we can just go in and join this session but so we went in and sat beside this session and uh, and it was a bunch of kind of older guys and they just didn't they didn't recognize us at all and my mum and dad were like this is very strange um so it turned into this session where they were playing something. We would play something in the hope that they would join in, but they would sit. They just sat and wouldn't play, um, even if. Uh, and they were tunes they would definitely have known. Um, and at one point, one of these old guys got up and told my mum that we were playing too fast. And I'll not say everything that my dad said back to him, but basically, my father said. Look, they're youngsters and they can play whatever way they want. Um, that stayed with me. That, that has stayed with me even to this day. Um, and I'm sure you're the same. That, uh, you get told by people that it's nearly like there's a rule book for folk music, traditional Irish music, you know, any kind of traditional music. Um and in some ways, over the years, even some albums that I've made have been slightly rebellious towards that side of things where people think you shouldn't do this to to, to this music, you shouldn't do that, you shouldn't play that instrument. I mean, I remember going in for the trio competition at the FLA one year and we got disqualified because my brother was playing a guitar. And a guitar wasn't seen as a traditional Irish instrument. Um, so, um, I think ever since that, I was, I was like, nobody's going to tell me what to do. And, and I was, uh, feel incredibly lucky that when I, 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 I actually became a lot more aware of a lot of music that was happening when I moved to England. When I was at home, we were kind of in our own little bubble and, yeah, we were listening to bands like Plankstein and the Dubliners and, and Paul Brady, Dedan, and not really aware of how massive the scene was. And I didn't really realise until I moved to England. And I, that's when I started coming across people like Fluke. And, and as you say, you know, really innovative music. And I remember the first time hearing Fluke, I was like, this is this is amazing. This is ridiculous music. What they're, you know, that real kind of tight backing between John, Joe and Ed, the, the flourishes and the tunes, the stops that it was like, this is, it was completely new music to my ears. And yeah, I was lucky. I just started listening to loads of different music and, and it really influenced me. And I always, I always grew up listening to bands like U2 and Oasis and everything as well. And 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 I've always wanted to, I always wanted to make an album, not necessarily a banjo album. I wanted to make an album that kind of encompassed all of those different influences. And that's why I made Areas of High Traffic, an album that I made in 2016. That album for me was, you know, really experimental. Um, 
but also it was like two fingers up to these people who were telling me that there's rules. So, um, so yeah, and I, I, I just, I love to be, I love to try and make the music innovative and, but at the same time, I do still love listening to, you know, that, what was the album you made? Pick it um, up. And I remember listening. Yes. Um, there's a set of hornpipes on it. And I remember listening to the hornpipes and it was like, this is, I would never have thought of playing a hornpipe like this. You know, you listen to, I, I feel incredibly lucky because I've had loads and loads of different influences. Um, and if you're able to take those influences away and and adapt them to your own music, you know, it, it just makes for a better future in folk music, really. Mm. How do you um, how do you manage on uh, four string banjo outside of the realm of Irish music? And what I mean from this, you touched on it earlier when you said that uh, your wife Kate prefers five string banjo to four string anyway, and maybe. So this has kind of come up for me over and over now over the last couple of years as We Banjo 3 kind of has branched out into an awful lot more song-based music and, you know, bringing in yeah. a little bit of old-time bluegrass. But when you go to, when, when when we go to, like, produce a song for a record, and sometimes it's straying almost into, like, a pop a pop world, and I sit down with a four-string banjo yeah. and I'm picking it, and I'm like... How do I make this instrument, which is quite clunky, uh, very inefficient, um, how do I make that sit and blend and sound correctly in the mix? Uh, sure. Have you yes. come across Have you come across that as an issue, and how do you how do you work around it? Well, very much so, because I mean that's why uh, saying that Kate prefers. The five string to the four strings probably a little bit, probably a little bit blunt, but it, it's exactly what you're saying. The five string, um, the the approach, the finger style approach, um, is much more. It kind of sits with popular music a lot easier. You know, people like. And Mumford and Sons and that um, and like you say when you sit down with a four string we're plectrum style and it's like right how do I get around this and one of the ways um, especially on banjophony and I've been I just started experimenting with different tunings on the banjo I I always, even since playing with Shona, I remember getting my banjo out of the case one time and it was tuned to GDGD. And I remember strumming the, the banjo going, wow, this sounds, this sounds pretty cool. After that, I started experimenting with loads of different tunings. Um, and when I'm, when I'm playing with Ron, actually, both banjos, I, have a, I bring a couple of banjos and one mainly sits in A-D-A-D tuning and the other sits in A-E-A-E. -E. Um, occasionally, I'll go to standard tuning with an A at the bottom or the top or whatever. Um, but playing in those 
playing these different tunings, I I thought kind of brought more sustain to the instrument because um, you can have a lot more open strings. So like you, you were saying about it sounding clunky, you can kind of make it sound a bit less clunky and a bit more like a five-string banjo. And I guess, I guess that's... <laughs> Why, why, why are we getting you to try and sound like a five-string banjo? Let's just get wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've been tuned ADAE for 25 years. Basically, since I was 11 years old. All right. 24 years. I had to learn okay. funk, funk the Cajun Blues. I didn't know that Jerry O'Connor was playing in a completely yes. different tuning. And I was trying to play it in the key of A, mm-hmm. and I couldn't reach the C sharp. So I tuned the G up to A, and I went, well, this sounds way better. So I do that. That's my default setting. Yeah. And then ADAD for anything Brilliant. that involves any kind of cross picking because you got that uh, just that constant resonant top string that that sings. And my the banjo that I'm playing at the moment has a five it string. Is, it really I got a five string length neck on it so that it will resonate more. <laughs> and so going to these huge efforts to try and sound like a five string banjo player all of the time. But I think with the added the added <laughs> bonus that when it comes to a set of rock and reels, you got all the the triplets and all the ornamentation and the drive that you can't get on a five string. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and that's what was so interesting about you know the difference the difference in and in, in approaches to both instruments. That's why we really sat and and worked on right. I mean, I mentioned it before, but right, I don't want to sit here and try and sound like a bluegrass banjo player. And Ron, I don't want to be sit here and sound like an Irish banjo player. Um, let's take our own approaches, kind of move in and out of, I'm going to move in and out of Ron's world. He moved in and out of my world. Um, and it, it, it just seemed to really work. Because I think somebody somebody reviewed banjophony, and I mean, I always refer to Ron as like a banjo rock god. You, you know, I don't know anybody that can bend strings and su- with such precision um, on a on a five string banjo. Uh, and somebody reviewed the album, and they said about you know Ron. Ron's style is very unique and the bendy string technique um, kind of nearly makes him sound like he's playing a like an electric guitar solo sometimes. And you've got on, on the Irish style then, which is quite kind of uh, driving, like a, I think they said something like piston style Irish playing. Um, so those, yeah, it's 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 really interesting how people, you know, how people reacted to the album as well, um, and it's you know it's it's something you guys have been doing it for a long time. I actually remember hearing the the track on the Solas album years ago. Um, I can't remember what the track's called. Seamus and Bella Fleck did it. And That's right. That was another. It was another bit of a banjo epiphany for me, this, the sound of two banjos together. I could be being biased, but there's no better sound. Like. 
that was a magic track and the big challenge for us in We Banjo 3 was trying to find a voice for all three banjos and I mean we ultimately transitioned to just about one banjo and sometimes two and almost never three because it's it gets very limited very quickly essentially if, if you can't voice things an octave apart uh, it gets very cluttered yes. very 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 quickly with the best will in the world and with uh, you know as much practice as you can do without it becoming so structured that it's unenjoyable to listen to um fi- finding, yes. a, finding a voice for each one was a big challenge sure yeah and then, and and when you're trying to do stuff in octaves as well then you're uh, people are you're having to start capoing up you know way up the neck and and i that's something i actually try to try to avoid doing very much is like this is getting really kind of geeky talk now but like going anywhere near past like the third fret of an instrument i, I try i'll try and work out a different way of doing it um rather than go past that because i I could be wrong, but in my, my in my head and in my ears, once you start go, getting up the neck and putting capos on, you kind of start losing the tone, and you spend all this money buying amazing instruments and capoing way up the neck. You you you're losing half the tone of this incredible instrument. So that's yeah. Sorry, sorry for the for the the kind of geeky talk there. That's why I got an I got an extra long neck so I can capo up a good bit without running into uh, too much harsh criticism. <laughs> um, speaking uh, speaking of criticism, what's it like being married to an uh, you know a touring musician, a very very well known singer? Um, how how does that work? Well, I mean, we're we're Kate and I are incredibly lucky because I I play in Kate's band and have been since two thousand and eight now. Um, so when we tour, we're together. Um, we're lucky that Kate's family live in the village, so they're they're able to to take care of the kids whenever we go away on tour. Um, it's. I think anybody would say the same about Kate. You know, she's she's going to be next year is going to be her thirtieth year as a touring musician, and she just remains the most humble, compassionate, kind person. That you know, I'm just trying to get brownie points here, don't you? <laughs> Aren't we all? <laughs> No, she's 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 incredible. She's incredible. Like there has never ever been a hint of an ego, like whatsoever. And like you say, I mean, she's she's uh, she's pretty huge in our world, um, but has is just grounded, just like her family. And I feel I feel quite I feel incredibly lucky to to be uh, to be a part of it, really. So I interviewed Tony Trishka recently and uh, we were both roaring laughing because he, he, he <laughs> I can't remember how he phrased it exactly, but it was essentially like, man, I'm, I traded up so high when I married my wife <laughs> and I said, so did I. Uh, and people keep telling me that. <laughs> I'm not well, I suggesting... do get told a lot. Yeah, I'm not suggesting that for a second. Um... I do get... <laughs> 
<laughs> I do get told a lot. You're punching way above your weight there, Damien. You're punching way above your weight. Oh, that's very smiling. Good. I just smile and nod. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, but can you play the banjo, can you? <laughs> is, there a, is there a plan for Banjophony Part 2? Uh, very uh, absolutely we we actually met up um, in April 2019 no it can't have been 19 it was 18 I don't know what year are we on uh, where am I at <laughs> <laughs> yes we we met up November 18 I think it was we've met up twice anyway and um, we've got about nine tracks recorded for a new record. The were was supposed to come back in April last year um, because Ron would come over and do the Sore Fingers um, week. Um, he would teach at that and we were going to finish the record. But of course, that's whenever COVID hit and uh, he couldn't come. So we're hoping to, I think we'll probably end up recording the rest of the record remotely um, and sending each other stuff. Um, but uh, hoping, uh, we're, we're touring in the UK next July and then we're touring again in the autumn, in October. So we're, we're hoping to have the album before we tour in July. Have you found a banjo that you love? Or is there a banjo out there that you would buy if you had any amount of money? Do you know what? I I play two Phil Davidson banjos. Phil is an incredible luthier who now lives down near the Forest of Dean. Um, if you look up Davidson instruments, you'll see you'll see some of his work. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you're aware of them anyway, and the but. Um, I was looking for a new banjo years ago. I'd, I had enough money to buy my first ever proper amazing instrument. Um, so I said, right, I'm going to... So I did a bit of looking around for a, for a banjo, you know, and, and I played quite a few. Um, but I remember there's a shop over here in England uh, in Huddersfield called Eagle Music Shop and the guy that runs it is called Steve Noon and I knew Steve at the time and he, he got wind that I was looking for a new banjo so he contacted me and said look I've just had one made for me by this guy called Phil Davidson so I went and tried it and yeah I was I just was like right yeah I have to have one of them They're, that's just ridiculous I've never haven't played a lot of banjos. The first few notes I played on this banjo, it was like, this is incredible. And I still, to this day, don't um, think I've played a banjo that I love more than, than the two Davidsons. I did recently get an Epiphone, actually, um, or an Epiphone recording A model. Um, again, this is geeky talk, but I've, I've come into a bit of trouble with it, though, because... 
Um, I might even have messaged you about it, and I, I think I maybe did a while ago. Um, the tuners on it are not holding the tuning, and I can't find tuners to fit the banjo in, in order to put tuners, new pegs on the banjo, I'm going to have to drill the holes bigger, which means and there's, I'm going to have to dam- damage the headstock and it's it's tearing me apart. I don't know what to do. <laughs> so it's still sitting in the case and I haven't really played it much. Yeah, I have an Epiphone A and I had it done up last January and it improved it enormously, but we made the decision to leave the original tuners in it. And they're not perfect. Like They don't hold yeah. a, a perfect tune, which does absolutely wreck my head. I have to. And from the point of view of playing the instrument, I wish I had said at the time, let's, repl- let's replace the tuners and put the best tuners we can into yeah. it. Because it does make a huge difference. Oh, definitely. It does to... I think even it makes a bit of a difference to the tone and everything. Well, and what is it about the Davidson? So I'll have to see where I'm... Uh, what is it about the Davidson well, banjos? Is it the feel of it? Is it how... Is it action? What do you like in terms of action? Now we're getting um, really, really geeky here. I like, well, I mean, it's, it's all part of... It's all part of the banjo world, isn't it? It's all... If you're anything like me, you're you're very particular about how your banjo is set up. Um, I, can, I, I, I actually like quite a low action, um, as low as I can get it, really, be, without without unwanted buzzes and stuff. Um, what I loved about Phil's banjo with that first time I played it was um, some banjos I feel tend to be a little bit too kind of heavy on the treble side. Um, and that first time playing Phil's, it was so balanced, but it was also quite mellow on the low end. Um, really, really precise. Um, just the sound, the overall sound of the instrument, it's so balanced and I just have never tried a banjo that sounds as good to my to my ears. I mean, somebody else might lift my banjo and go, "I actually prefer I prefer this one." Um, but and and I've got two of them now, and they both sound equally incredible. Let's go. Uh... The, the thing about it was as well. I remember. <laughs> Sorry, I, I was just going to say I I used to have a banjo and. Quite regular, I would get told at sessions, "Oh, that's so loud that thing, isn't it?" <laughs> the thing I loved about the Phil Davidsons was because they were a little bit more mellow. I would kind of sit sit a bit further back in the session and <laughs> wasn't heard as much. <laughs> <laughs> when I got my first clarine banjo, I was in a pub in Galway and I was doing playing a session, and Harry Bradley was in there. And Harry looks down at the banjo and he goes, I like that one. It's a lot quieter than the Epiphone. (laughs) (laughs) And you know, know, Harry, that was a very pointed comment. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, to go, to go. Let's go full geek mode while we're at it. What, what, uh, what kind of strings do you use? Gauges and um, even brand. What do you like? 
Um, well, I get all my banjo strings from, in fact, it's from Eagle Music Shop, the shop I just mentioned before in, in Huddersfield. Um, nickel, nickel strings. And if, I'm pl- if I've got a banjo that I'm playing an AEAE, I will use um, like medium gauge in 38, 28, 18, 12. Whereas if I'm going ADAD, I'll use a bit heavier. So I'll go up to 40, 40, 30, 20, 13. I also have a little wonder, um, a Vega, a little wonder as well, which I got for my birthday a few years ago, which is a great little thing. And I've actually tuned that up, CGDA. And it sounds, it sounds lovely, actually. It's really nice. Is that, uh, is that a short-scale tenor or is it a little banjo uke? Or banjo, banjo lane, or it, it's a it's a short scale tenor. Yeah, it's a little seventeen fret job. Yeah, I had lovely a lovely little lovely little thing. Yeah. I I had a little wonder uh, banjo lane, and I couldn't cope with right. trying try to keep it in tune. And then Mike Harding uh, sent uh, I think he had a message on Facebook. Does anybody have a banjo mandolin that they're willing to part with? <laughs> and I was like, I do, <laughs> and he loves it. He loves it. It's a, it's a lovely instrument. Here you go, just, Mike. You try it. <laughs> uh, last question. Have you, have you found the perfect pick? Um, I am actually, for quite a while now, I've been using a, it's a, it's a Jim Dunlop uh, orange pick. Um, the, it's actually quite a heavy pick. Um, what gauge is it? It says it's, I think they say they're 60 mil, but it feels like a 70 mil. Um, that I've been using those for quite a long I used to use the red one, which was a bit lighter. Um, but then I started using the, the heavier one. Um, so yeah, I've got a box. I've got a box full of those now. I've never really, do you know, my, my mate Marini, this is a good point, actually. My mate Marini, who, I credit to teaching me the banjo. When I was growing up with him, he used to he used to give me these. It was a thumb pick, but then what he would have done was he would have the the bit that sits behind your thumb. He would have cut off a straight line. He would have sanded the, the inside of that, and then he stuck a plectrum to the inside of it. So you so you had your thumb pick on, but there was the plectrum stuck to it. So you could, I, I used to play with that quite a lot. I can't do it now, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've used those Dunlop oranges. I think they're a Tortex T3 or something, or they're, they're the ones I had. That's right, yeah. I came across a, a company in Nashville called Stringjoy, and their picks are fabulous altogether. And that's what I'm using now. I actually have a pick in my box. Um... We were doing a gig with Kate. It was the last Christmas tour that we did. And the night before, the darkness had been playing at the venue. And I don't, the guitarist must have been throwing plectrums all over the place. So I, my plan is that one of the tracks on this new album with Ron, I'm going to play it with a, a, a plectrum from the darkness. <laughs> That's the Very sad. That's a name. Um, that's a name for an album, the plectrum from the darkness. 
<laughs> on that very silly note, uh, Damien, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, lovely. I mean, I could talk banjo shop all day, but uh, then it'd be just you and me listening at the very, very, the, at the bitter end of the absolute banjo nerd universe. It'd just be the two of us. But it's been an absolute pleasure. I really look forward to Banjophony Part 2. I won't lie, I'm very jealous. I'd love to do a project like that sometime. Um, can't have enough banjo. Well, there has been there ha- it has been talked it has been talked about Ender that um, we were we were going to ask a guy called Ender Scaffold to maybe guest on a track. I don't know if he, I don't, I'm not sure if he's up for it or not. Though I'll have to send him an email. I don't. I think he has way too much rust at the moment. <laughs> That would be the. <laughs> let me get back. Let me get two tours under my belt first, and then I'll say absolutely yes. <laughs> well, it's, it's been a pleasure speaking to you, and the thanks for you. Get back to the family, and uh, hopefully we'll see you sooner rather than later. And in the meantime, stay well. Thank you for listening. If you loved this episode, please head over to our website, webanjo3.com, to subscribe, rate, and do leave us a review. It makes a huge difference. See you next time, Inside. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.